right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. That. You don't got time that. Right? Let's go. Break it. Break it. Let it cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Hey, this is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Derek Johnson solo today on RCST. Adam Dravetta out. KU takes on Oklahoma State tonight. 6.30 is when pregame coverage starts right here on KLWN, KLWN KLWN.com. Leads in to tip off at 8 o'clock with Brian Haney and Greg Gurley on the call. Again here on KLWN and our sister station on 105.9 KISS. It's the first true road game of the year for KU. Of course, they were supposed to have uh, the true road game at Colorado. Well, that got called off just mere moments before the start of the game. St. John's game was a road game, but it was a it wasn't their like official home court. Now, if you want to count that as a true road game, I, I'm totally fine doing that. But it just is a a different level, especially when it is a school that you have really struggled on on the road. I, I'm trying to think the last time off the top of my head where even in a KU win in Stillwater, it wasn't a game that kind of came down to the last couple minutes where. You're kind of sweating things out. You're kind of wondering with a minute and a half, hey, they're up five, better make a stop here. They better score here to put this one away. It's probably been a while since that's happened. Maybe this is the one because that past struggles against Oklahoma State goes a little bit in contrast to the fact that KU has had so much success in season openers in Big 12 play. Last year, if you remember, they had to go on the road in the Big 12 opener at Texas Tech, and uh, it was Ochag Baji who hit the last second shot to beat Texas Tech um, on kind of a weird inbound play. Now, Oklahoma State's offense, as we look into this game, hasn't been very good this season. On the year, Oklahoma State's 7-4 and four overall. They haven't really fared well against their best competition, so I don't totally know how good this team is. If you remember, they were a team that made it to the second round of the NCAA tournament last year, got hot, won the Big 12 tournament. Um, I forget if they got the four or the five seed, and then they lost to Oregon State in the second round. I think they were the four seed. And Cade Cunningham was the number one pick in the draft. They were uh, this team that had Cade and a bunch of other guys. And then at the end of the season, Cade Cunningham gets hurt. He misses um, some action, and Oklahoma State performs well even without him in the lineup. And they bring so many players back this year you just wondered if it would be a situation like when Texas had Kevin Durant and that team only made it to the second round with Kevin Durant. The next year, they bring pretty much everyone back and they ended up actually being a better team overall. They had certain guys take jumps like DJ Augustine or AJ Abrams and that team made it further to the Elite Eight than the one before. And you wondered if that would be the case for this Oklahoma State team. Well, they won't even go to the NCAA tournament this year because the NCAA is kind of screwing them over, which that's not really a conversation for tonight's game as far as how that's going to go. But again, more evidence. Don't participate with the NCAA. Fight against them tooth and nail, which KU obviously is. But again, that's a conversation for another day. Um, they brought all these guys back, and I thought they would be pretty good this year. I, I didn't think they would you know, be on the same level of Kansas and Baylor and Texas and those top schools in the Big 12, but I thought they would be in that middle pack that would be, again, NCAA tournament level good, even if they didn't make it. But so far this year, they have struggled a little bit against their best competition. They're 0-4 against teams who are ranked in the Ken Palm top 115. They played Houston. Um, That was their most recent game, and that was a double-digit loss for them. It's a really good Houston team. Ken Palm has them as a top-five team in the country. In fact, they're third. Kansas is fourth. Um, But they have... You know, lost to Oakland in there, who's barely inside of the top 115. 
0-4 against top 115 teams. Now, if we expanded out just a few spots more, NC State is 120, and they won that game. So even if you wanted to say top 120, they're 1-4. The rest, they'd be 6-0 and or 7-0 and if you count the NC State to outside of that range. The point is they haven't really done well against their best competition, and that has to probably make you feel good about tonight for Kansas because of the fact that they haven't shown they can beat the best team so far this season. Now, it still is early. Conference play is always a whole nother deal. KU has struggled here in Stillwater, but, you know, they haven't proven to this point that this type of win is their forte. And as I mentioned, the offense has not been very good for Oklahoma State. They play fast. They have a top 25 tempo in the country, but they almost play too fast because they're turning it over a ton. You wonder if they're speeding themselves up too much and it's becoming chaotic because they're 317th in the country in turnover rate. Oklahoma State is also 348th in the country in getting the ball stolen from them. That means they're only 10 teams worse, 10 teams worse than them in the entire country. That's not just power five. That's not just the, you know, big, whatever it is, conferences. If you include like the Atlantic 10 and the big East and so forth, there are only 10 teams worse than them in every school in division one at getting the ball stolen from them. And KU is lethal when they can get out in transition especially when you have like athletic wings and guys who are able to finish in transition. And they have that. They have fast guards with Dewan Harris and Remy Martin that can get out in front. They have those athletic wings who can finish in transition with Ochag Baji and Christian Brown. They are such a lethal team in transition. And you have a team who gets the ball stolen a lot. That should be great news for KU. Now, I did mention how fast they are. KU has struggled in transition defense. So maybe that hurts them a little bit with how fast Oklahoma State can play. But because of the the monstrous amount of turnovers that they can have and getting the ball stolen specifically leading to easy buckets makes me think KU could be in for a good night in that regard. And it doesn't just end there with Oklahoma State struggling offensively in terms of the turnover numbers. They're not a good three-point shooting team. 28% on the year from three. That ranks 325th in the country. Now, you could say... Maybe we think this team is better than a 28% three-point shooting team. Even if they're like a 31 or a 32, maybe that's bad news for KU because you go into this game saying, oh, no, that means that today is when they start their uh, correction to the mean. And we've seen so many games where KU has given up big three-point totals to other teams where just a random guy goes off and they get unlucky or they just defend it in a certain way that leads you to having more open threes, such as what happened with George Mason where they hit 11 threes on over 40%. They're not a good three-point shooting team. They also shot well against you from three in last year's matchup when they weren't really a good three-point shooting team, but they don't have Cade Cunningham anymore either. And Cade Cunningham was a good three-point shooter. He could hit them um, off the dribble as well. He could hit them contested, and that's a big key, but it also is about Cade Cunningham had such a gravity to him and was such a good facilitator he could get others open threes. And I think you've seen the downside of that for Oklahoma State this year with not having him because it's not just that they're not shooting well from three as a team at 28%. They don't really have anybody who's taking a bunch of threes, meaning that you don't really have a guy on the team that you view as, hey, we need to get this guy, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine three-point attempts a game because he's so good at it and we need to run plays for him. And because we don't have the creator that we had in Cade Cunningham, you know, we don't have a guy who's going to go get five threes off the dribble for himself. Um, no one is averaging more than three and a half threes per game for Oklahoma State. Ochaik Baji has like 74 three-point attempts this year. Nobody on Oklahoma State has more than 38. Avery Anderson for Oklahoma State is shooting 34% from three. Really, if you're looking at real numbers for guys who have taken enough attempts to be in this conversation, Avery Anderson would be the only one above 31% from three individually. So you don't have to worry about a ton of guys, and even then, their best three-point shooter is not lighting the world on fire. 
they are pretty strong at two-point shots. They get to the foul line a good amount. Not good at converting them, but they get there. And they're really good at offensive rebounding. Those are how they're going to stress you offensively. But the fact that they turn it over so much and they can't shoot threes, I think has you feeling pretty good. Now, if they do have one of those weird nights where they're hitting threes because, you know, on a one-game table, anything can happen, then maybe that stresses you a little more. And then maybe there is more of an immediate stress on the big man for KU. And Mitch Lightfoot going to be in the starting lineup tonight for David McCormick. Well, you're talking about a team, again, who is strong at two-point shots, who gets to the foul line a lot, and good at offensive rebounding. So immediately, there is stress on that center position on Mitch Lightfoot in his first start for KU. But David McCormick's going to play as well, so there's going to be stress on him. I don't know if K.J. Adams, Zach Clemens, what their role is going to be, but could be stress on them as well. KU has been a, a better offense which with Mitch Lightfoot on the floor this year, but they've been a better defense with David McCormick. Maybe Mitch Lightfoot playing more minutes, getting more custom helps the defensive side. Uh, or maybe David McCormick just starting to hit more shots and he gets more minutes and then boom, we're back to normal. I don't know. But the defense, I will say, is as much as the Oklahoma State offense underwhelms and is unimpressive, defense is really strong. And that's going to be the case throughout most of Big 12 play. As you go down the list, like you kind of start up top in Big 12 play with Baylor, who... On Ken Palm, they don't have the number one defense in the country. That would belong to LSU. I think Tennessee is number two. Uh, Baylor, I believe, is number four. But, you know, if you're picking defenses and accounting for both the stats and, and the personnel and what they can do in a big moment, you can make a very real argument that they should be number one. I, I don't know. At the very least, they're in the conversation. But you look down the list of Big 12 defenses. Baylor's fourth. And this is Ken Palm adjusted defensive efficiency. Baylor's fourth. Texas is ninth, Oklahoma's 32nd, Kansas is 31st, Texas Tech's 10th, Oklahoma State's 20th, Iowa State's 7th, West Virginia's 27th, TCU 54 and Kansas State 43 are kind of the outliers, but Kansas at, at 31 is in the bottom half of the league. For a lot of leagues, if you had the 31st best defense, that would be one of the, you know, maybe four best defenses in the league or something like that. So it's a really good defensive league, so you got to get used to this. But this is even one of the better defenses in the Big 12. Top 20 in the country in that regard. Um, and they do it with with creating a lot of havoc. Whereas their offense has a lot of turnovers, they can force a lot of turnovers. They are top 10 in steal rate. They are top 10 in turnover rate defensively. And they're also top five in block rate on defense. So they just create havoc. They get a lot of deflections. And... They're also top 20 in two-point defense. I think a big part of that, you know, if you have good shot blockers, it's going to help you prevent easy two-point shots. That all makes sense. Now, if we're looking at weaknesses on that end for Oklahoma State, it is being poor at defensive rebounding, fouling too much. They send a lot of opponents to the free throw line. Um, and I think the good news for KU, as good as Oklahoma State has been at forcing turnovers and, and getting steals, We've seen KU, like St. John's was a team who was like that. Good at forcing seals, good at forcing turnovers. KU still kept the turnovers down. KU has been really good at avoiding turnovers this season. Even against George Mason in a game that they had a bad offensive game, you know, just the 76 points, their lowest field goal percentage, they had just nine turnovers. That was something they continued to do well. So if they can continue to do that, if they can continue to rely on that calling card of not being a high turnover team, then you take away Oklahoma State's biggest strength. You also take away Oklahoma State's ability to get out in transition, and you further add to the idea of, well, now they have to be in the half court offensively, and they turn it over a lot, and now we can feast in transition against them. And if you continue to, to not turn it over well, when they're on defense, you're on offense, you can also feast on the offensive glass. They are, for KU, your top 35 nation, tar, nationally in terms of offensive rebounding rate and Oklahoma State has not been a great defensive rebounding team been kind of poor in that regard as you think about it though when you think about a team that can force turnovers that can play really good two-point defense that can get a lot of blocks I think from the standpoint of how can the KU offense be successful obviously like I said be watching the turnovers and can they get a bunch of offensive rebounds? Certainly. But I think the most important thing I'm looking out for for the offense tonight 
is how well they shoot the three ball. They struggled at it uh, in certain regards, like from your star players, Christian Brown, Ochai, in the game against George Mason, but you kind of made up for it with Jalen coleman lands going bananas. And KU's shooting 37% from three. They're top 40 in the country. So they've been proficient at it, not like elite, but good. If you have a defense that is honing in on the middle and, and getting those shot blocks and whatnot, you kind of need to score in easier ways, which could be getting an open three. And if you're missing those shots, now you're going to have to take more twos against the strength of that defense. And that becomes problematic. But also, if you're hitting threes and you're keeping it on the outside, you're probably going to be less turnover prone too, which goes back in line with that conversation. So how KU shoots from three tonight is probably going to determine how good of an offensive showcase that can be. And I know that kind of sounds stupid because you could say that every game, right? Oh, if, if this team goes 15 of 30 from three, of course they're going to have a good offensive game. I don't even mean that. I just mean, can KU just be like average? Can they just be proficient shooting threes? Just avoid a bad three-point shooting game. I think you should be okay on that end of the court. Um, but overall, when you look at Oklahoma State, solid roster, you got some good guards, Avery Anderson, Bryce Williams come to mind. Uh, you got a super senior and a guy like Isaac Likely leading the point guard spot. That good shot blocker in Musa Cisse. They also have, uh, you know, former former friend of KU, Bryce Thompson. And he has been better than he was at KU last year, but he's still kind of struggling. I think he's shooting like under 40%, eight points per game, 23 minutes. So he's been fine. Um, the biggest thing, though, that causes worry in this game is just KU is playing in a place that they have royally struggled under Bill Self, especially in comparison to other venues and opponents. KU is 6-8 and eight playing in Stillwater under Bill Self as the head coach at Kansas. I think the only place they're worse in the Big 12 is Morgantown, where they're 3-6, and six, and that's obviously the last games, but you've also had a lot of really good teams in, in Morgantown, whereas with Oklahoma State, a lot of the teams they've lost to have maybe more so been, you know, either non-NCAA tournament teams or borderline NCAA tournament teams. They've just struggled in Stillwater. Every other team, I think, besides Oklahoma State and West Virginia, they have a, or, or Bill Self has a winning record on the road in the Big 12, but not the case in Stillwater. Six and eight and three and five over the last eight games, including last season when they lost 75 to 70, and that was a game that KU probably should have won they were up late, and they kind of blew the game. Isaac likely hit a big corner three when he was just like an awful three-point shooter all year, but hit a big one, and then KU just couldn't really execute down the stretch, and you lost a game that you felt like you definitely could have won. Um, it's just been a kind of house of horrors for KU. And normally because of that, because of the fact that they've had such a bad history there, I would probably be all over Oklahoma State tonight. I just look at this, and because their offense just isn't good and they turn it over a ton, which could be deadly against KU, uh, and, and because it's it's KU's first non-conference game, so it's tougher to kind of look past your opponent, and because they're coming off a poor game where maybe you can reset a bit and we should see lots of energy between that and the reinsertion, you would think of Remy Martin, who's playing tonight, um, along with maybe more energy with the, with the switch of Mitch from Dave at the center position. I think I like the Jayhawks to win, but because of the past history, I'll still take that into account and the fact that I can't remember the last time KU won in Stillwater where it was just comfortable even in the last like two minutes of the game. I'm taking Oklahoma State to cover the six and a half, but I think I like KU to win in a close-ish game. Now, if KU does win tonight, that's a nice start because you, as you look at the first three games of the schedule, now that the TCU game got moved, and I don't know when that'll be, you're at Oklahoma State tonight, you're at Texas Tech on Saturday, you're taking on Iowa State next week. What would constitute a good start in that first three? I think two and one, if you go two and one there, if you say that stretch, you went two and one with a, a top 25 Iowa State team, top 25 Texas Tech team on the road, Oklahoma State team that always gives you trouble on the road. I think you'll be you, you'll take that, you'll be totally fine with 2 and 1. With with as good as Baylor has been though, you might have to go 3 and 0 if you want to win the Big 12 title. I mean, Baylor already has the win at Iowa State. So you need to kind of match that. But you'll take 2 and 1. And if you lose tonight, that means that it's basically no you need to win the next two if you, you know, 
want to keep your early chances of, of winning the Big 12 without getting into the conversation of, well, just win the rest, right? But if you can go 2-1 and one in this first three stretch, you feel okay. If you can go 3-0, and oh, you'll be feeling really good. And for that reason, you kind of need to win tonight or else even the 2-1 and one becomes more of a coin flip. But again, I think KU gets by in a close one for many of those reasons, but I am expecting a close one because history has told us it'll probably be just that when they're playing in Stillwater. This is Rock Truck Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN, KLWN.com, depending on it. Matt Tate of Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com, joins us in about 15 minutes. About 20 till 4 on a Tuesday. Time to talk to Matt Tate of Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com. First time we talked to Matt in the beautiful year of 2022. Matt, do you have any uh, New Year's resolutions that you have already broken in this new year? No, I do not. I do, I do not make them very often. But let me tell you the best one I ever made. Mm. If you got, if you'll indulge me, absolutely. Me because typically, New Year's resolutions are what, like fitness related, or yeah, it's know, like I'm going to read a book every or, month, or just like right, better right, yourself, right? right, right? Yeah. yeah, things that that are all good and well, and I and I. You know, take a stab at that, and I've done it in the past too. But I found that, you know, it's, a lot of that's kind of unrealistic, or maybe that's just me being lame and lazy or whatever. But either way, that kind of the, the two kind of go together there. So I don't know how many years it's been, probably close to 15 years, maybe longer. But one year I made a New Year's resolution finish my glass of water. Every time I go to a restaurant. Mm. So, like, before and, you leave, you just chug it? Sure, sure. Okay. I, and, or, you know, if you drink it along the way and they don't refill you, then you're good. You don't have to, you don't have to chug it, but they're... Uh, so what happens know, the, when you're at one of those restaurants where, like, the waiter or waitress is, like, on you like a hawk, and as soon as you drink it, it just topped it? I know. It, you know, it was... It was I, I was challenged a couple of times, uh, but... <laughs> But the reason I liked it is obviously all of us can stand to drink more water. It's healthy and good for you and all that. Number two, I felt like walking away from a table full of you know glasses full of water was, was wasteful. Mm. I, I always hated that in terms of taking care of the planet and that kind of stuff, too. So I felt like that was a realistic, attainable New Year's resolution that would benefit me and would benefit Mother Earth. And, and you know, I, it was one of my favorite ones of all time. Now, I will tell you one incident where Uh-oh. what you were just kind of alluding to happened. There was a restaurant in Lawrence years ago called Louisiana's. Okay. It was a Cajun place. And I was there with a couple of friends, had a nice Cajun meal. It was a good place. It didn't last very long, but it was, it was delicious. And they knew, the, they knew the deal. This was maybe like March or April, you know, so they knew they were, they were on to my resolution and had maybe been with me before when I... <laughs> Had to finish the water before I left. So I, you know, was sitting there and we just stuffed our faces of Cajun food and a little kick, a little bite, you know, so I had to get through it and I was pretty full and all that. So I chugged it, chugged it, chugged it, and finally got through to the bottom of the glass and just took a big, like, deep sigh as I sat back in the booth and just kind of, you know, was celebrating my victory, still holding on to the glass. As I was holding on to the glass, the waiter rolled by and filled it up again oh. while it was in my hand. And everyone at the table was like, no! <laughs> you know, they knew. <laughs> they knew they were going to have to sit there and wait for me to finish. They weren't sure I was going to be able to do it. I'm happy to report that I did do it, but it was it was by far the most challenging of that entire year for, for, for that resolution anyway. So not sports-related. Really, probably not that interesting, but since you asked, I had to share that because that's top of mind when it comes to resolutions. No, I th- I thought that was honestly that might be the greatest athletic achievement. Um, I I, I don't know all your athletic achievements, but <laughs> that's got a rival up there. I mean, that's that's I mean Joey Chestnut. I don't even know if he could do that. Um, there you go. Well, it shows a lot, right? Yeah. It shows toughness. It shows determination. It shows resilience, commitment. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot there that that you can learn about me and. Uh, and and you know I'm I'm happy to share that story now 20 years later or whatever it's been wow crazy I love that I love <laughs> that okay um what's more intriguing for the basketball game tonight 
um, and seeing how it affects KU. Because last time we saw him against George Mason, it was, I guess you could say, their worst offensive game of the year. Shot just 43% from the field, held the 28 points in the second half. Uh, what are you more interested to see how it affects the KU offense? Remy Martin's return, we don't know how much he's going to play, but he is supposedly returning, or Mitch Lightfoot exchanging in to be the starting five? Yeah, I think it's got to be Remy. I think he, he factors into the offense way more. I mean, it's obvious that, that Bill Self's looking for some sort of spark out of that five spot, and uh, you know he's talked a lot about it in the last several days. Uh, the, the biggest thing that I thought was, by far the most interesting other than him announcing that he's going to start Mitch was the fact that, you know, he, he expects and believes that it's realistic to think that you can get 20 and 12 out of that five spot. And it could be four guys playing that five spot. You know, you're not looking for 20 and 12 from one guy, like he's Thomas Robinson or something like that. But the fact that he put those numbers out there as, as sort of the, uh, the goal for, for that position, um, shows you in a lot of ways how far off they've been. And, and so I don't know that Mitch Lightfoot starting answers that or changes it all that much. I mean, obviously the other night he was he was very good, 7 for 7 and 14 points by himself, but not near where they want to be on the on the glass. You know, he I think he only had maybe one or two rebounds and, and Dave had a couple himself. But um, I, don't, I don't think that move, as much as I do think it's, offensively driven and maybe about the efficiency of it all. I don't think that move is as much going to factor into what this offense is overall or, you know, big picture offense or anything like that. Uh, Remy Martin being out or not being, or excuse me, being in or out of the lineup. I mean, I think that's where you, you start to see the impact on the offense immediately. Everybody has a little harder job. Um, no one more so maybe than Dewan Harris who has to, has to do a lot more when Remy's not out there to, to kind of share ball handling duties and primary ball handling duties and things like that. So uh, beyond that, Remy Martin's a guy that can make a shot from 30 feet. He's a guy that can split a double team with his quickness and get to the rim and get fouled. He's a guy that can push in transition. I mean, I just think that, that the different things that he brings offensively, that there's so much more on that list. Than, than what you're going to get from, from Mitch Lightfoot. Even if Mitch Lightfoot goes out and has a really good night, which he could, um, you know, a really good night for Mitch is what we saw the other night, 7 for 7, 14 points. Uh, you know, nice and efficient and quality offensive production, but not anything that's going to alter the, uh, the outlook of what this team can be offensively. Remy has that ability and that potential and, and has shown that at times. So, um, I, I think that's the answer for sure. And, and then it's also worth watching, you know, just how, how much is that knee bothering him? How much does it impact what he's able to do? And, and, and also, if you know, if that's the case, how much is it worth having him out there? So th- there's a lot, a lot to pay attention to with Remy returning. And, uh, and, and I think Lightfoot's a nice footnote, and I think it's great for him. And, and I do think Kansas could benefit from it, but um, I just don't think it's a focal point by any means. We're talking with Matt Tate of the Lawrence Journal World, KUSports.com, with Mitch Lightfoot as the starting five. And I I don't know if this will be something that does continue for the entire season or if David McCormick reclaims his spot at any point, how that's going to all work out. But if he is the starter at center, and that's the way this goes the rest of the way, is that good enough for KU to win a Final Four or to win a title? Um... Boy, that's a, it's a tough question to answer because my gut tells me no, um, and that's not a knock on Mitch. I just think that, uh, I, I, I mean, you know, Self has basically said that. I mean, not in that exact context, but I, I think it's very clear that that part of the reason he is stuck with him so much, excuse me, part of the reason he's stuck with McCormick so much and part of the reason that he still so desperately wants McCormick to put it together and figure it out and start playing up to his potential is because he believes that the only way they're going to get where they want to go is if they've got that presence in there. And, 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 and he's right. That's not to say Mitch Lightfoot can't give you good minutes and can't be productive and can't be efficient and all that because he can, but Mitch Lightfoot is not a guy that's going to overwhelm any defensive player in the post for really any team that KU could face in the tournament, but it's certainly for a team that's still playing, 
you know, in the Elite Eight, Final Four type of part of the season. So I, I think that uh, I think I think Mitch Lightfoot's a, uh, the perfect backup, man. I do. I think he'll I think he'll do well as a starter. I think he's reliable. I think he's everything you want any player to be, really. But um, but I, I think at Kansas, when your goals are national championships and Final Fours and things like that, I think that you know the the reality of the situation says that. Lightfoot's the guy you want on your team and on your roster, and, and you want more players like him with the intangibles that he brings and, and the team-first mentality and all that stuff. But you want those guys as maybe your depth pieces because you need more talent, you need more dynamic players in those front-line front, front line spots. And, and, you know, how many times have we seen it this year, Derek, where David McCormick or even Lightfoot, for that matter, you know, have, have, have caught a ball – near the paint or on the post or in transition near the paint or whatever. And and for so many guys in the past that played that spot for self, it was an automatic two points. I mean, even even a little soft jump shot, you know, floater type thing or, or quick turn on your on your outside shoulder or whatever it is, those, those have been automatic for so many of KU's bigs in the past. And right now, every one of those shots seems to be an adventure. And, and yeah, Lightfoot put them down with, with a lot more regularity, and that's a big part of the reason that he's going to be in the starting lineup tonight. But um, it's still not an automatic, uh, gimme type of situation when a lot of guys in the past have have made it that. And we're not just talking about Yudoka Azabuki, who dunked everything close. You know, we're talking about the Durrell Arthurs, the Darnell Jacksons, uh, the Morrises, Thomas Robinson. I mean, guys that just, when they got within sniffing distance of the rim, they put the ball in the basket. That's what they did. And, and oftentimes those were dunks, but they weren't always. They, they just had this knack for scoring when they got in there. And, and, and McCormick hasn't shown that at all. Um, he did last season, obviously, toward the second half of the in the back half of the season. But uh, they're missing that piece right now, and so I think without that piece, it's hard to call Kansas a legitimate, guaranteed, you know, Final Four bust type of team. Doesn't mean they can't get there. I mean, we've seen crazier things happen, and and the rest of this roster is certainly talent enough to to maybe overcome that. But it'd be hard, probably, for for very many people to project them as, as a Final Four favorite or anything like that. So um, they need Dave, and and whatever that means, you know, even if that means Mitch keeps starting and, and Dave's just really productive and efficient off the bench, maybe that's the, the magic formula they need. But whatever the case is, they, they need him to, to play better and, and to, to produce and, and to be what he was last year in the second half. He was really, really good and, and – uh, it's 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 been a little bit baffling that he's reverted so much to what he was before that. Well, you hit on something there at the end that I'm really curious about. Like if David McCormick does well off the bench today, I I kind of took Bill Self's comments as you know if he does well, then we can reinsert him back into the starting right, lineup. Right, for sure. For but sure. I think you could also make the argument that you know if he does well off the bench, what if that's just how it what it takes to get him going? Like what if that is just what makes him better, takes pressure off him in some way, mentally headed into a game that helps him. And, you know, if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it type of thing where if he's doing well off the bench, I, I don't know, like what happens if you uh, see tonight he does well off the bench and then you start him the next game on Saturday against Texas Tech and then he does poor again. Does he go back to the bench? Yeah, I think you've got to be careful with the wishy-washy part of that. I, I don't know that you want to keep, you know, trading spots like that. I, I think you'd have to have a, if he, if he plays well tonight, I think you'd have to have a real long conversation with him. Uh, I think Self would have to have a real long conversation with his assistant coaches and, and probably with Mitch as well and, and say, hey, look, this works and both of you guys look good. So what do you think? Should we ride with this and try it again? And and I think that's where you'd learn a little bit about David McCormick and, and learn, um, you know, about his ego and, and how that affects this thing because um, everything I know about Dave is that he's a, a KU first, team first kind of guy. Um, I don't know that you could find it on, on film or anything like that, but uh, all you have to do is go back and watch the second half of that game last week. Uh, he played, or sorry, last weekend against George Mason. He played four minutes in the second half, came out early and didn't go back in really. And Lightfoot came in again and, and looked good and put the ball in the basket. And after every Mitch Lightfoot bucket, 
you could look at David McCormick on the bench, and he was clapping, applauding, head up, hands over his head clapping. I mean, this was not some phony act that, that was him thinking the cameras were on him so he was going to show that, hey, I care about my team. No, that's just him. And, and, uh, and you know, he's a Mitch Lightfoot fan as much as anybody probably. So um, that, that tells you about his character, and I, I think that, that you would have to have that conversation and say, look, Dave, are you cool if we keep doing it this way until it doesn't work, until it shows that, you know, maybe we need to try something different again? Because what we did tonight went really well for both of you. So as long as you can handle it, let's, let's stick with this. And, and I, I, I don't think there's any way he would be opposed to it, um, but, it's, but it's hard to know until you're in that position. Um, because, because you know, everybody wants to start. Everyone wants to be the star. Everyone wants to be the leading scorer and on Sports Center and all that stuff. And, and it's hard to do that when you're just a, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth man. But, but again, the goal of all these guys, and, and I think McCormick is right there as much as anybody, the goal of all these guys is to win and win a title and make a run and, and do what people at Kansas expect to be done. And, and so I do think he'd be open to that. Um, and, and, and it would all, it would all at that point be about, you know, how the coaches want to handle it. But um, man, they're looking for efficiency and they're looking for that bottom line of, of 20 and 12. And, and if this is the way they can get it, maybe that's something that, that like you said, I mean, maybe that's a formula that can work out and, and, and maybe they ride with it for a while and see if it continues. He is Matt Tate. You can check out all of his work in KUSports.com or in the LJ world. Matt, thank you so much for the time as always, man. And uh, if you're going to finish any water in your car ride down to Stillwater, don't drink it all at once. You don't want to be stopping on your way too much down there. That's right. That's right. And how funny, how aptly named Stillwater. Wow. Oh, Didn't even realize wow. that until you said it. Amazing. Meant to be. Uh, sometimes everything comes together perfectly. That's what happened right there on live radio for the whole world to hear. <laughs> that's right, Matt. Thanks again, man. All right, Derek. Thanks, man. Take care. All right, that's Matt Tate. Check out all his work, LJ World, KUSports.com. I'm Derek Johnson. You're listening to Rock Shock Sports Talk. This is FM 1017, 1320 KLWN, KLWN.com, and the KLWN app. Depend on it. Man, that Monday Night Football game last night, a lot of people either uh, really happy or really upset with how that thing ended. Najee Harris with the game, it was, I think, 1914 at the time, under two minutes left. Um, if he just gets the first down, the Browns had used up their their timeouts. If he just gets the first down, game's over and the Steelers can kneel the ball out. He scored a touchdown, and... I mean, it was a 37-yard touchdown run, so that's basically 10 points worth in fantasy football. Um, if you have, like, weird, different bonuses in your league or something for, you know, big plays or whatever, then maybe it was different. Um, but that ended up being the difference in a lot of people for their fantasy championship. I even saw one person who said that I think the Steelers had, like, 300 total yards going into the last play because they ended up getting the ball back and then kneeled it out even after that touchdown. And the kneel down from Ben Roethlisberger to end the game brought them from 300 to 299 total yards, which they, in in their league, their defense and special teams, like there are points awarded to how many yards you allow. And that changed them from losing to winning their fantasy championship. Just crazy how uh, that can, you know, create um, heroes or create enemies, depending on who you have or who you don't have in fantasy football. Also, uh, in the NFL, I saw today, apparently there's reports going around that Jim Harbaugh is interested in possibly jumping back to the NFL. Just took uh, Michigan to the college football playoff and got whomped by Georgia. So he's sure he's sitting there going, man, we finally did it. We won the Big Ten. We finally beat Ohio State. And, oh, my, it's not even close to being good enough to win the national championship because it's just going to be whoever wins the SEC. Um, Apparently... Las Vegas Raiders would be a destination spot for Jim Harbaugh. So that would be interesting, and that would be of note for the Kansas City Chiefs, a team in their division. But if the Raiders make the playoffs, like if they beat the Chargers, finish up 10-7 and seven and make the playoffs, it's going to be hard to not give that job to Rich Basicchia, the interim head coach. 
I'm usually not a proponent of just giving the job to the interim guy. Sometimes you kind of catch lightning in a bottle. But because he was the interim for so long of the season, it's not just that he like finished out the last three games. I don't know. That'd be pretty tough of, of what to do. But who knows? Maybe Jim Harbaugh will end up back in the NFL next season. Uh, the Chiefs-Broncos game, if you missed this, got moved to Saturday. It was originally scheduled for Sunday. Now it's going to be played on Saturday. And unfortunately, it's also going to be played at 3.30, which I say is unfortunate because KU plays at 3 o'clock on Saturday. So thank you, NFL, for doing that. Um, KU is going to be playing at Texas Tech on Saturday at 3 with the Chiefs-Broncos game at 3.30. Now, if you're, I guess, putting a priority on what to watch, I don't know, everybody has their own priority, and you can make your own priority. I think what I would do, you know, the KU-Texas Tech game probably has more I don't know. You can make the argument both ways that like, well, which one really has more impact? I would just say that the KU Texas Tech one would probably be the priority because it's going to be a a shorter game and B now that the Chiefs don't like the Chiefs could still get the one seed. And yes, the game still matters. And yes, winning, you'd rather be the two seed than the three seed because then you're hosting the three seed in the divisional round. And um, then you're also the highest seed if the Titans were to lose in the divisional round that you could still host the AFC Championship. So, like, it still matters, but I, I don't know. I'd probably prioritize the KU Texas Tech game, 3 o'clock, and then when that ends around 5-ish, you can get over to the, the Chiefs game unless you have the two TV set up or go to a sports bar or something, which is the most ideal way to watch that. But that uh, is a little unfortunate that that's how it goes. It also means the Chiefs now have a short week playing at mile high, which is not ideal. You don't want a short week in the NFL to begin with, you especially don't want a short week if you're going up to play in altitude. And you had a, a short time to turn around for this with learning literally on Sunday that you were going to have to be playing on Saturday. So that's not great. Now, it could, though, turn into a good thing because it could be an extra day for you to get prepared for the playoff game, which that's a positive. But I do wonder, because this is ESPN flexing this game over from Sunday into Saturday, could ESPN be setting this up? Maybe this is too like tinfoil hat, so that the Chiefs would play on the Monday Night Football Wild Card game, another ESPN game for them, and they would basically be saying, because here's the deal with the Monday Night Football Wild Card game, it's gonna be really unfortunate for the team who plays on that because that means that they're gonna be on short rest for the divisional round game, and that's not totally fair in my eyes. Um, I would imagine whoever plays on the Monday Night Football wildcard game would then play on Sunday because that would be really unfair if they put them on Saturday for the divisional round. But maybe this is ESPN saying, hey, we plan on putting Chiefs. Now, like, we didn't know if the Chiefs would be available for the wildcard round because they might have got the bye week if they would have won out. But now that they're available, what team is going to put up better ratings for us than the Chiefs? So we want to have them on the Monday Night Football wildcard game. And, and I don't know who has, like, first priority, who picks what, what the top option gets chosen to, what the top team. I, I don't know. But if that is the case, then you're basically saying, well, sorry, we're giving you a short week between the wild card and the divisional round. So, hey, Kansas City, we have these slots here on ESPN on Saturday. We'll make it up to you. We'll give you a game on Saturday. You'll have not just an extra day to prepare for the wild card round. You'll have two extra days to prepare for the wild card round because you're playing on Monday and that'll make up for the fact that you're going to have a short week if you win the wild card round going into the divisional round I don't know maybe that's tinfoil hat but I feel like that's what this is setting up to be Chiefs are going to play Saturday then they'll be on the Monday wild card game unless the Titans somehow lose the Texans again and the Chiefs can find a way um, to earn the, the first round bye the Chiefs though are just one in four against a collection of a lot of the teams in the playoffs. And I wonder how much that means. Now, if we count the Raiders, I guess it is three and four. I was more so looking at this as like teams I'd actually be worried to play in the playoffs. Um, and I, I don't think the Raiders will end up making the playoffs because I think the Chargers are going to beat the Raiders on Sunday and that'll be that. But as far as like teams... The Titans, the Bengals, the Bills, the Chargers, teams that I think all of those you could realistically say, yeah, they could win the AFC. I know a lot of people aren't that high on the Titans, 
But, I mean, they're still the one seed. Derrick Henry's coming back to practice this week. They beat the Bills. They beat down the Chiefs. Like, it's not like they haven't beaten these good teams, right? So, I maybe the Titans aren't as big a favorite. Like, I would I'd probably pick the Chiefs over the Titans. I'd probably pick the Bengals over the Titans. I'd probably pick the Bills over the Titans. But I wouldn't be surprised if the Titans won the AFC. Um, so that collection of teams. I think that really is your collection of teams that I wouldn't be surprised to win the AFC. Maybe some would argue Patriots. I still would if a rookie quarterback, Mac Jones, made it to the Super Bowl. Maybe other people would say the Colts. I still would be a little surprised if the Colts made the Super Bowl because Carson Wentz has not been very good. The best teams... In the Titans, Bengals, Bills, and Chargers, in my eye, best contenders, I should say, for the AFC, you're just one and four against them. And there's a good chance. I mean, right now, the the playoff bracket would line up that in the first round, in the wild card game, the Chiefs would be playing the Chargers. That's a little scary. I mean, how close were they to beating you in L.A.? They did beat you in Arrowhead. Now, that was a game that they got a little lucky with your turnovers, so maybe if we replay it in Arrowhead, it's uh, a different story, and the Chiefs can easily walk out of there. But that is a tough wild card game. And then you'd be looking at the divisional round. If the three seed wins and you're the two seed, you're playing the three seed. That would be the Bengals. We just saw what the Bengals did. You couldn't really stop them defensively, and they are kind of a bad matchup for you on that end of the field because the Chiefs like to play so much man-to-man defense. Well, what happens when you play a team that has one of the best wide receivers in the NFL in Jamar Chase? and two other really good wide receivers in T. Higgins and Tyler Boyd, and a good quarterback who's accurate and uh, works on timing and, and does things that do well against man coverage, can scramble out of the pocket, can run for a first down. It's kind of a bad matchup when you're playing the Bengals, as we just saw. That's tough. And how much does that matter, specifically with the teams that are winning their division right now, that you went 0-3 against them? Like, do we take that as gospel to say that the Chiefs just can't beat the best teams in the AFC? Do we take that as, and I mean, again, like when Baltimore, before Lamar Jackson got hurt and they were looking like they were going to maybe win the division, at the very least be a playoff team in the AFC, you lost to them too. And you could have thrown that in there and added to the conversation against some of these best teams. And add to it as well that in the Baltimore game, along with the Cincinnati game, you blew double-digit leads to both of those teams. And add to all that, that in the case of the game against the Bengals, in the case of the game against the Bills, in the case of the first game against the Chargers, and in the case of the first three quarters in the second game of the Chargers, you could argue that Patrick Mahomes was outplayed by the other quarterback. I'm not saying he's a worse quarterback than those guys, but Joe Burrow, as good as Patrick Mahomes was in that Cincinnati game, Joe Burrow, how could you say he didn't outplay him? He threw for over 400 yards. Patrick Mahomes kind of had a a tougher game against Buffalo Um, in the first Chargers game. Justin Herbert was the one who made uh, the game-winning drive plays happened at the end of the game, and Patrick Mahomes didn't. In the first three quarters, it was Justin Herbert over Patrick Mahomes, but then the fourth quarter in overtime, Patrick Mahomes ended up with the better game and the better finish to the game. But that's got to all be scary to you that makes you feel like, uh uh-oh, maybe there's something more to this than just bad luck. But it also is very easy to excuse each one of those games. Like the Ravens game, that I didn't count into that record, obviously, because they're not a playoff team. But the Ravens, it's like, oh, we had a Clyde Edwards-Alaire fumble, otherwise we win that game. Or um the Bengals game where you have all the calls go against you or poor coaching decisions or Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey drops a kick return that gets called back for a holding call that I don't know if it would have actually impacted the kick return. You had a bunch of things go against you. The Bills game, even though you lose by, I think, 38-21 or something like that, you had the tipped interception off Tyreek Hill's hands. You had the incredible play by the defensive lineman on the other interception. He had the interception of Josh Allen that would have got you back into the game, but they called a a bad roughing the passer call. The Chargers won. You had four turnovers, including some unforced ones, like the one where you're going in to score, and you have Marcus Kemp, who never plays receiver. He's only out there in special teams, uh, wide open on a slant route, throws a little bit behind him, but nobody's within three, five yards of him, and it just goes off his hands and it's intercepted. 
things like that, you can easily explain away each one of these losses. But when you stack them all up together, where there's smoke, there's fire. And so that has to make you feel a little uneasy. I did see a good point, though, on this from uh, Matt Verderam, who um, is an NFL reporter with, with Fansided. And he was talking with Josh Briscoe, uh, friend of the show, and uh, maybe we'll get Josh on this week. But um, he kind of pointed out that he said, you know, pointing to regular season results often ends up being irrelevant. When the Chiefs won the Super Bowl, for instance, a couple years ago, they beat the Texans and the Titans in the AFC playoffs. Texans and the Titans beat them both in the regular season. Last year, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were 0-3 against the New Orleans Saints and Kansas City Chiefs combined. They lost both to the Saints in the regular season, got crushed by the Saints in both of the regular season meetings, beat them in the divisional round, lost to the Chiefs, and they were getting beat pretty handily through, what, halftime? And then they finally kind of came back and made it a little closer than the score probably ended up should have been, and then they crushed the Chiefs in, in the Super Bowl. So I guess regular season results don't apply to that, and that should have you feeling better. But it, it, it's just kind of hard to wipe from your memory the fact that they did have all these poor performances against some of the AFC's best that make you not feeling maybe as confident, especially coming off of a loss. But certainly the Chiefs are going to probably be the favorite in the AFC, at least the betting favorite, um, once we get to playoff time. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Coming up next, we're going to talk some college football. We've also got to get to our Rock Chalk pick a hawk. Adam's not here, but I do have our picks for the two of us. This is RCST on KLWN. Depend on it. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com. And we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. I'm Derek Johnson. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk. This is FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Uh, On this very day, 16 years ago, was the 2006 National Championship game between Texas and USC from the 2005 season uh, widely renowned as maybe the greatest college football game of all time. We certainly, for the best Rose Bowls of all time, because that was at the Rose Bowl, got a uh, run for its money with the Rose Bowl that we saw on the first. Uh, what a game that was with Ohio State and Utah. I... To me, that is the USC-Texas game, the the best college football game I've ever seen in my lifetime. Now, obviously, that's not, like, really long, and if you have one that you think of from the, you know, before then, like, I'm totally cool with that. Um, but that game was just so much fun. You had so much, so many stars in the game, and it wasn't even, like, NFL stars. Like, how we look back at the early 2000s Miami team and you, you look at the roster and it's like, oh my gosh, like Frank Gore was the third string running back and you see all these like NFL guys. It wasn't even necessarily from that standpoint. And certainly there will, were a lot of NFL guys. Like you look at the Texas secondary and like all those guys, like three of the four, four of the four played in the NFL for basically a decade plus each of them. And you did have uh, some guys who did have big NFL careers. Guys like Jamal Charles, I think, uh, was a freshman in that game. Um, Reggie Bush had a long NFL career all that stuff, but it was like college stars as well, like Matt Leiner, Vince Young, and, you know, Reggie Bush, Lendale White, like, it was just such a star-studded affair. It was between two huge college football programs, like two of the, you know, if you're ranking the college football programs, I don't know where they'd sit, but both of them would certainly be in the top 10 all time, maybe higher than that, I don't know, maybe like top seven or something, and you had it at the sports best venue, for a bowl game, the Rose Bowl. It was a phenomenal game. It wasn't just a, hey, this is a shootout, nobody can stop each other. The score ended up, you know, l- looking that way, 41 to 38, but there was it was a lower scoring game at halftime uh, for a while in that game. You still had some hard-hitting big plays from the defense, and you just had what, I mean, that performance from Vince Young, greatest performance in, in one game in, in college football history. It's certainly up there. Just an unbelievable game, and I have uh, such fond memories of watching that 
when I was a younger kid. Um, this year, not expecting the title game to be nearly that good. Alabama taking on Georgia. It's going to be a rematch in the title game. I am so disinterested in this title game, to be completely honest. Will I watch it? Yes. But, like, I don't know. Maybe there is college basketball on that. If there's, like, a top 25 college basketball matchup, I will be splitting, like, the TV, you know. It won't just be like I'm putting all my attention into this game. It's going to be like there's two games on. I'll be watching it. I'll be paying attention. We'll talk about it on the show. But how interested are you in this rematch? How interested are we in this happening every time now? And and I know a lot of people are in the same boat that they're upset with how this continues to happen. But here's my thing. I, I'm just upset with the result. But I, I understand there's nothing I can do, right? Like, what do you want to happen? Do you want the refs to like cheat their way into picking the wrong teams to win? Do you want there to be forced players like, nope, sorry, can't go to Georgia, can't go to Alabama? Um, no, we can't do that. So it just is what it is. It's just unfortunate that it keeps happening and you just, you know, it's like you're almost rooting if, if you don't want Alabama to be in the title game or you don't want like an SEC title game. It almost feels like you're rooting for like the, the Washington Generals against the Harlem Globetrotters. Like, you know, you're going to lose. But you do it anyway because you just want something different. And, and once again, the college football playoff semifinals just sucked. The best games, I think, over the course of the college football playoff era, which goes back to 2014, and that was the case again this year, the best games have consistently been from the New Year's Six games. As I mentioned, the Rose Bowl was fantastic. I mean, one of the best New Year's Six or BCS, whatever you want to call it, games that we've ever seen with how high scoring it was, with how back and forth it was, with the individual performance of Jackson Smith and Jigba. Rose Bowl was awesome. Fiesta Bowl ended up being a great game. You had this big comeback from Oklahoma State, Notre Dame trying to put on a late surge, unable to come through. I mean, even the Cotton Bowl and the Sugar Bowl weren't great. Like the Baylor Ole Miss game was, was super low scoring, kind of ugly, but they were competitive games. Um, way better than the semis. And so you'll see this argument a lot with the whole idea of, well, why would we expand? I know Nick Saban talked about this, like there's no point in expansion. We're just going to end up with what we are. Yeah, we probably are. We're going to end up with Alabama and Georgia no matter what. But can we make the journey a little bit better? Because right now the journey to that title game sucks. We're just getting blowout after blowout in the college football playoff semis. We probably will still get blowouts in the in the semis. We could have some awesome quarterfinal games. We could have some awesome round of 12 games if they go to the the 12-team playoff. And maybe we do get a situation where, you know, instead of this four-seed or three-seed who, you know, we know has to be in there, like I think back to the first iteration of the college football playoff in 2014, Florida State got in there as the three-seed. And it was like, okay, well, we have to put them in. They're the defending national champions. They're undefeated. They won the ACC. They won a Power 5 conference. They have the previous year's Heisman. Like, we have to put them in there. They're undefeated from Power 5. And they ended up getting smoked by Oregon. And again, it wasn't necessarily wrong in the process of putting them there, but, like, the sixth seed that year ended up being TCU. TCU was probably going to beat Florida State. And so you probably would have ended up with a better semifinal round between Oregon and TCU than you would have between Oregon and Florida State by having the quarterfinal round that year. But even then, again, just make the journey better. Because that's honestly what college football is. Like, for so many people growing up, they love college football because the regular season matters so much or because, whatever, bowl games, or they love this or that. Most people who fell in love with college football didn't fall in love with college football because of the fact that it was the same team was winning titles. And yes, you could say there was more parity with maybe in the 2000s or, or something than there is now. But there's always been those programs in a given time period that have sat atop. Right now, it's been Alabama and Clemson. But in the 2000s, you could say it was USC and... In the 1990s, you could say it was Nebraska and Miami were winning every title, or, or Florida State, right? Like, there's usually a handful of programs that run it for a decade, whatever it is. 
That hasn't really changed. Maybe it's more to the extreme now than it was before. Maybe there is less parody now. But it's not like, at least in terms of who's winning the title, there's been a ton of parody. It's always been about the journey. It's always been about those games outside of who wins the title. And that was as, as flawed as, like, for instance, the BCS was. The best thing about the BCS wasn't necessarily in determining the title winner or determining who goes to the title. It was that the other bowl games, the other BCS bowl games, you know how much they mattered? You know how cool they were? Whether it was just the thought of from the outside that, oh, maybe if we win big enough in this BCS bowl game, we could get a number one vote in the AP poll and get a split title like USC did. Or if it was just the fact that it mattered and it was talked about and it was actually covered more than what ESPN has completely done to the sport, which is just basically, you know, complain about the fact that nobody cares about anything other than the playoff, despite the fact that all they talk about all year long is the playoff. I wonder who created that monster, ESPN. But it has been about the journey. That is what has made college football so special. You kind of just accept that, yeah, one of those teams, the Alabamas or the USC's or the Ohio State's, they're going to win the title. But let's see some upsets along the way that take out some of these other teams. Let's see some awesome quarterfinal matchups. Let's see these awesome bowl matchups, whatever it is. And for that reason, we need the expansion. And then, I mean, if you want to get into the argument of, well, I think there would be more of a, a filtered system with recruiting. You know, if we get more teams represented in the playoffs, more conferences, more regions, more areas represented in the playoff with an expanded playoff, maybe we'll start to see more of a, instead of, you know, five top 30 players go to Alabama, maybe just three of the top 30 players go to Alabama. And maybe there is more of a spreading out of where the best players go. And there will be more parity in the future, but that's another conversation. At the very least, make the journey more enjoyable. Because no matter what, even if we are getting the blowouts in the semifinal games, make it as meaningful for the other games as possible. Um, by the way, also quick diatribe about the Cincinnati-Alabama game. Some people like to play the results of this happens. So that means it was always that way. That's not how it works. Just because Cincinnati was outmatched by Alabama is not an indictment that they should not have been in the playoff. 38 nothing, 24-7, 24-6, 31-14. Those scores I just read off, those are all the scores of Alabama's college football playoff semifinal games. Against the likes of Michigan State, 38-0, Washington, 24-7, Clemson, 24-6, Notre Dame, 31-14. We don't sit there and say, well, sorry, Michigan State lost 38-0, Big Ten. Man, you're not getting back to the playoff. Sorry, guys. The result does not change the process of them getting in. And we've just seen in this era blowout semis, as I just talked about. On average, we've gotten one every year. Usually, it's it's like one good-ish game that might be a really good game, and then the other one's a blowout. This year, we got two blowouts. Um, if you're going to indict Cincinnati in the group of five for one performance, then indict Michigan. Then indict the Big Ten for getting blown out by Georgia. Indict Michigan State for getting blown out by Alabama and the other conferences, too. I'm not saying that a group of five teams should make it every year. I mean, if, if we expand the playoff to you know, eight or 12, then, then yeah, that's another story. I would like to see that be the case. But in a 14 playoff is currently constructed. Obviously, that's not the case. You have to have the right situation for that to happen. And I think Cincinnati was the right situation. And even though they got, you know, pretty dominated by Alabama in that game, as much as it was weird watching Cincinnati's offense take zero risks in a game where you are a big underdog, the defense actually played very well, I thought, for Cincinnati. But the offense took no risks, was not very good. They had no chance from the get-go offensively, so they just got kind of dominated in the game. That does not necessarily mean they shouldn't have been in the playoff because of the result. You know if Cincinnati wouldn't have made it, who the fifth team was? Notre Dame. Think that would have gone any better? Notre Dame lost to Oklahoma State in the Fiesta Bowl, which, by the way, Notre Dame now still has less New Year's Six or BCS Bowl wins than Kansas. So congratulations there. Um, to the 2008 Orange Bowl team again. But regardless, even if even if we go the other way with this, if Cincinnati would have pulled the upset and, and the shocking win of the century in college football by beating Alabama, even if Cincinnati would have won, even if Cincinnati would have lost by 50, once we decide who the four in the playoff are, 
based on resumes to that point. It does not retroactively change things, despite many people who love to play the hindsight game. When Virginia lost to UMBC in the 116 matchup, that doesn't mean Virginia is not a top 32 team because they couldn't make it to the round of 32. We love playing the hindsight game in sports. You can only go off what you have for the resumes for the 13-week season with the conference championship to that point. And to that point, Cincinnati was undefeated. They beat the fifth team in the country in Notre Dame. They're obviously going to be in. We can't play the hindsight game and say just because they got outmatched by Alabama, which, mind you, many other teams would have done as well, that they shouldn't have deserved to be in and that we should never see a group of five team ever again. If it stays at a four-team playoff, chances are we won't see a group of five team ever again because everything had to be the perfect storm for Cincinnati to even make it. But it's pretty ridiculous if we were to use that one to keep everybody out here going forward. But again, hopefully we get an expanded playoff moving forward and then this isn't even a conversation. Um, But the national championship again will be on Monday night. Georgia taking on Alabama. Last bowl game tonight, LSU-Kansas State before then. And, you know, that's fine as well. All right, this is Rock Truck Sports Talk on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. KLWN KLWN.com, the KLWN app. Depend on it.